Welcome to the AWS Tech Chat. Your hosts, Russell and Dr. Pete. We're solution architects based out of Australia, and we help customers adopt the AWS Cloud Platform. In each episode, we talk about the latest and most interesting technical developments in the world of AWS Cloud. We bring you the AWS Roundup and deep tech dives into topics of interest. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of AWS Tech Chat. I'm Russ, and I have Dr. Pete with me. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the show. Lots to get through in this episode, so we're going to do the AWS Roundup in a second, where we're going to talk about lots of updates from AWS, and then later on, we're going to do a slightly deeper dive into resource tagging. Now, I was slightly skeptical when Dr. Pete brought this up as a topic for discussion, but he won me over with his infectious enthusiasm, so we'll get into that a little bit later. Absolutely. This is going to be hopefully a great discussion because lots of people are using AWS tagging uh, to maintain and look after the infrastructure and get some extra visibility of what the things are actually doing. So we'll do a deep dive into that and hopefully you'll enjoy it. All right. So let's do the the roundup, uh, starting with a service that everybody's got a little bit of in their environment, and that, of course, is EC2. That's right. So we actually, a little while ago, in November, in fact, last year, announced that we're going to be going to longer EC2 resource IDs. So they're here now and available to you. So what you can do is, in the console, you can opt in. So between now and December 2016, we are in a transition period. Uh, and during this period, you can opt in to use the larger resource IDs. What that means is currently we have an eight-digit hexadecimal resource ID, we are going to be moving to 17 characters. So that means they're going to be much, much larger. So if you are using that in a database, in your scripts, it's well worthwhile opting in. Now, as you opt in, you opt in on a, on a region-by-region basis and a user-by-user uh, basis as well. So when you opt in, you can then try to experiment to make sure your scripts, your tools, your third-party um, you know, users that you might be um, uh, use, relying upon are compatible with a slightly larger, when I say slightly, I mean quite a lot larger, um, actual resource IDs. So that is an option that you can select on the AWS console, from the CLI, or you know, through the APIs, you know, things like PowerShell as well. So what happens if I don't opt in by December? So if you don't opt in, uh, this is the transition period. Uh, when new accounts get created, uh, and from December, from this year, uh, we will automatically launch instances, uh, reservations, volume, and snapshot IDs are all going to be going to the 17-character length strings. Okay, and then why why are we doing this? What's the what's the reason? Well, you know, we've been growing quite rapidly all around the world, Russ, and as a result, you know, we are basically running out of um, digits. You know, these are hexadecimal, so you know, these are very large numbers that we're using, and each of those IDs are unique to a particular region. So uh, it's very important that uh, you know, we move to the, to the larger field size to be able to accommodate our growth. All right, so the key message there is get testing between now and December. Absolutely, do it right now and uh, see how you go. If you find that something isn't working and things break, like your scripts and your pipelines, uh, you can certainly opt back out of it, and uh, we'll go back to the smaller resource IDs. All right. Now, tell me about screenshots. Absolutely. So a lot of admins um, often rely on looking at the console for their, inf- for their instances. We've now made available the EC2 instance screenshot option. So if you navigate in the console to instance settings and then scroll down to get instance screenshot, what that does is it takes a screenshot of the console. So whether you're running Windows or Linux, what we'll do is we'll actually bring up essentially a thumbnail image of uh, what you should be seeing on the screen. Traditionally, 
uh, on the Windows, for example, an admin would need to IDP, so remotely access the Windows machine to see what's on the screen. Now they can literally, uh, programmatically, or through the console, uh, get a snapshot of what's happening on the screen. And this applies equally to Windows as it does to the Linux instances. Uh, now, naturally, Linux is a, is a, you know, a console-based view, so uh, you get a graphical representation of the console. So quite a handy way of rapidly getting access and visibility of what's happening on the root console of your instance. Very nice. So let's shift gears now and talk about databases for a little while. So there's been some changes to RDS. Now RDS, if you're not familiar with it, is our relational database service. And this is a managed database that gives you various flavors of database. So you can spin up instances with Oracle, SQL Server, MySQL, Postgres, MariaDB, or Aurora, which is our own MySQL compatible database. Now, obviously you can spin up EC2 and you can install any kind of database uh, you like and managing managing yourself and that's fine but what RDS gives you is a managed experience and so what that means is that we will take care of the EC2 instances underneath we'll back it up for you we'll patch it etc so really designed to take the pain out of managing a database now one of the other features that you get with some of the engines on RDS not all but some of them is something that we call multi-AZ now what this is, is it's the ability to have, for HA reasons, an instance running in two separate availability zones. So let me quickly just explain what an availability zone is, just in case you're not familiar. So within a region that we have at AWS, so for example, Sydney uh, is a region, within each region we have multiple availability zones, and you can think of them as separate data centers or clusters of data centers. And so with a multi-AZ deployment, what you're getting is an instance, you're getting a primary instance and then also a standby instance that are designed to be in different availability zones, different physical data centers. It's very easy to set up, so when you actually just deploy the instance, you just let us know that you want it to be multi-AZ. We will then create the primary instance, we'll create the secondary instance, and then we will also set up synchronous replication between them. So that synchronous replication obviously means that those two instances are always in sync with each other. Now the reason I'm telling you all of this is because uh, the list of engines that support multi-AZ has grown now uh, to include SQL Server as well. So we've got Oracle, Postgres, MySQL and also SQL Server. Uh, Aurora does it automatically because of the way that we've built it. But the nice thing about the SQL Server one is that's now available in the Sydney region. So if you have been waiting for that to deploy SQL Server with multi-AZ uh, on RDS, then that's now uh, available for you. And lots of Microsoft customers have been awaiting this quite eagerly because uh, they want to go multi-AZ. And guys, it's finally here, so push the button, turn it up, and crank it out. That's right. Now, it uses the SQL Server native mirroring underneath the covers, but That's it right. just means that you yourself don't have to set it up. We'll, we'll do that all for you. Just check check the box and we'll do the do the deployment. And the now, nice thing is it also reduces licensing as well because a lot of customers may have been today trying to run, you know, um, about DAGs across multiple AZs, which means you're running a, you know, a higher-end version of SQL Server and there's a lot of complexity where the DBAs would have had to set this up themselves, whereas now it's literally a push-button feature to activate it. Now, the other thing we should mention here is that the primary purpose for the multi-AZ is for HA reasons. So you can't actually read from that secondary instance. It's not designed to allow you to spread 
you'll reload across that second instance. It's, it's just there for HA reasons. Now we do have uh, a different option within RDS that is designed for that uh, spreading the read load and that's called a read replica. Now traditionally the read replicas work again across availability zones so that your data stays within one region and you can have multiple read replicas. Now these are actually using asynchronous replication so there may be a little bit of lag from the secondary to the primary but for a lot of uh, customers that lags actually not a drama because they're they're happy with that um, depending on the application of course that's a great segue Russ into a new feature which is now part of Aurora which is the cross-region read replicas now what that means is that uh, you can now create a read replica in another region um, so if, if you're operating out of Sydney you can perhaps set something up in US East and by doing that and setting up a read replica in US East, we actually spin up a cluster behind the scenes as well. Um, so once you start to activate the read replica, your data will move over to the remote region. Um, and while you're there, your applications can start to read from that particular data that's actually been moved over. Now, the nice thing about that is you can then start to go global, set this up in a way whereby, uh, in case of uh, a disaster recovery scenario, you can then promote the read replica in the other region to become the master. So that way it can take over and become the primary from which you know all the rights can go into. So it becomes quite a handy way of setting up a very much a cross-region um, HA configuration for your databases. All right, let's uh, leave databases now and move into the big data space. Now, I don't know if I mentioned this to you, Peter. It's my goal to sneak a little bit of big data into every episode and uh, here's the one for this episode. Yes, I, I figured you'd be sneaking one of those in at some point. So uh, let's get explicit about it and talk big data. In this particular case, let's talk EMR. Let's. So EMR is our managed Hadoop service. So if you're not familiar with EMR, basically, if you want to spin up a Hadoop cluster in the AWS environment, obviously, you can use EC2. You can spin up EC2 instances, install Hadoop, configure all the components, etc. What EMR gives you is the ability to talk to EMR instead and say that you want a Hadoop cluster of a certain number of nodes with certain instance types, etc. And we will then provision the EC2 instances, configure them, install Hadoop, make sure everything's working, uh, and then hand the cluster over to you for you to start using it. Now, one of the primary things that anyone working on Hadoop is interested in is that they can run the vast ecosystem of open source tools that are out there. Now the nice thing about EMR is that we support a very large number of those, including the usual suspects such as Hive, Pig, HBase, uh, of course Spark, uh, Presto in there as well if you're looking for an MPP interface into Hadoop, Zeppelin for notebooks, etc. And in the latest release, we've updated a lot of those versions and also added support for Apache Tez. Now, Tez is an execution framework underneath Hadoop that works on top of Yarn. And if you think about the original execution framework for Hadoop was, of course, MapReduce. And more recently, it's Spark that's getting uh, a lot of attention. But Tez is in there as well. And so we get a lot of questions around, well, what's the difference between Tez and Spark? Well, let's talk about the similarities. So they're actually both much, much faster than MapReduce. For starters, the difference comes depending on how you want to use them. So Spark is a much more general purpose engine 
for doing all sorts of different things. So within the Spark Core, obviously you've got Spark SQL, you've got uh, MLlib for machine learning, you've got Spark R, Spark SQL, etc. And whereas you look at Tez, Tez is really designed specifically for speeding up Hive and Pig. So we do have customers that use both uh, for different reasons. So if you are interested in the in the Apache Tez framework, that's now available in the latest version of EMR. Hey, Russ, can you explain, you know, Hive and Pig to some of our listeners? Because uh, not everyone's actually across what those things do. Sure. So Hive and Pig were kind of the, the the original applications, if you like, on top of Hadoop to try and make it a little bit more usable so that you didn't actually have to get, in, get into the weeds and write MapReduce code. Hive was the original SQL-like interface into Hadoop. So Hive gives you the ability to write in a SQL-like language, which then converts that into MapReduce for you. And still used very widely. Uh, it's a real, it's a real workhorse. Gets, gets a bit of bad press for being a little slow, but certainly is still, still widely used in the industry. It's kind of interesting because uh, you know this whole move to big data was let's move away from you know SQL-like statements that we're going to issue against a database and learn a whole new way of doing things. Interesting to see how everyone's now going back to uh, the well-tested and well-understood um, SQL. That's exactly right, Pete. And I mean, a few years ago, there was lots of calls for SQL to be um, to be buried. Uh, but I think um, rumors of its death were premature, and it's certainly come back with a vengeance. And you're absolutely right. A lot of these projects, once they get up and going, one of the next things that they do to, to make it more friendly to a wider audience is to put a SQL interface on top of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and interestingly, that's exactly what Apache Phoenix does as well, specifically for HBase. So HBase is a non-relational data store uh, that, again, is used a lot because it's kind of um, one of the original uh, non-relational stores that works with Hadoop. But again, people wanted an easier access path into it. So Apache Phoenix provides you with that SQL interface into HBase and also gives you a JDBC API as well, so you can plug tools in, gives you Mm -hmm. secondary indexes, and also, I think in this latest version of Phoenix, there's beta support for ACID transactions as well. So to your point there, you can kind of see um, that they're really starting to open up HBase to, to more traditional database workloads, if you like. Yeah, look, I think it's an interesting point because a lot of people tried the new technologies and kind of went, oh, this is too complicated, it's, too, you know, it's confusing me. Um, let's keep it simple again. And yeah, it's fascinating to sort of see the, uh, you know, the come around technologies, you know, going back to mainstream again, and you know, relying on people's expertise to leverage it that way, as opposed to trying to relearn an entire way of manipulating your data. Yeah, that's exactly right. Now, if you are interested in big data, we do have a blog that gets updated uh, weekly. Um, lots of really interesting articles on there that cover all sorts of stuff around Hadoop, streaming, NoSQL databases, uh, etc. So that's at blogs dot aws dot amazon dot com slash big data one word um, and uh, yeah jump on there and have a bit of a look there's uh, obviously plenty of history there as well lots of different blogs written by us but also by um, by customers and partners as well awesome so Pete one of the interesting things about big data um, especially I know I said I was going to sneak one thing in but I thought I'd uh, I thought I'd get two you're doing a pretty good job so I, far I right? just, no, not one thing there's a couple sneaking in here today I thought I'd just roll with it while we were I didn't think you'd notice if we just kind of uh, if we just kept talking mm-hmm. but it's interesting looking at, at, at big data and data warehousing and the way that those workloads use 
disk and the types of I.O. that they use is extremely different to a lot of transactional workloads. And that's, Absolutely. Yeah, and that's really been reflected now in a couple of the new EBS volumes that have been released. That's right. We've got the new high throughput and the new cold storage EBS volume types, which are actually fascinating because um, they are essentially we've gone back to spinning drives. And uh, you know the, the price points are also quite interesting because um, there's been more density being put into uh, magnetic media, uh, so the price points for those devices has dropped significantly. And uh, I, I hear they're being uh, now available for use with uh, you know um, Hadoop and clusters and so forth. That's right. Yeah. So the, the um, those new EBS volumes are perfect for some of the workloads that our customers are doing uh, on EMR, for example, Hadoop type workloads, or even just. Uh, running a data warehouse on on EC2 as well because of the fact that you're not looking for that extremely low latency transaction you're looking at throughput mm-hmm. throughput's really your your main um, the main goal there and so some of these magnetic disks are absolutely perfect for that the the throughput optimized you know are the ST1s as we refer to them are really great for high throughput things like MapReduce which we've already talked about but also things like Kafka uh, doing ETLs log processing um, and running data you know data warehouses on top of that and the the cold hard drive storage are also equally applicable because what what you're actually looking at is you know while they have um, a lower number of um, IO throughputs per second so IOPS as we often refer to these um, they do have very large IOP blocks so for example the throughput optimized uh, ST1 EBS volumes you know, do a maximum of 500 IOPS, which may not seem a lot, but each IOP is actually one megabyte in size. And conversely, the cold SC1 EBS volumes do only 250, but again, they do one megabyte block sizes. So effectively, you're still pushing you know, 500 and 200 megabits per second of data, sorry, megabytes of data, you could say, um, but they are at a, you know, much lower IOP ratings. So there's, there's another technology, Pete, which, uh, again, the, the death of the hard drive was heralded uh, very loudly uh, at the, you know, when SSDs came along. Mm. But, um, but they're not dead and they are, they are thriving. Um, yeah, so what's, what's old is new again. Seems to be the, uh, the recurring pattern here. That's right. I was talking to a customer the other day, actually, and he was referring to the different disk drives he had in his environment. He kept referring to these drives called spinners. And I thought initially, I thought, oh, he's got some new, some new fancy uh, type of disk drive. And uh, eventually I said to him, what are, what are the spinners? And he, he just looked at me and he said, he said the hard disk drives. Because <laughs> they, of course, yes. they spin. That's right. We've come a long way. I remember being a kid and opening up you know, old hard drives because their heads used to get stuck. Um, you know, I remember being at swap meets and you know, trying to uh, you know buy old hard drives to uh, actually build my own PCs from uh, scrappy bits and pieces. And yeah, you could pick up some old ten megabyte hard drives and uh, repair them back in the old days. So yeah, uh, you know what's what's old is new again, and this is another great example of innovation taking place. Uh, you know, with the spinners now. Pete, uh, showing your age a little bit there with ten megabyte hard drives. <laughs> they did sound like jumbo jets taking off when you powered them on as well. So yes, I think I'm showing my age. Actually, maybe that should be a question. Instead of asking how old someone is, you say, what's your earliest memory of the size of the hard drive that you had at home? <laughs> so how many decibels did they actually generate at, at power-up, right? <laughs> Absolutely. So, uh, so let's move uh, from big data into uh, data transfer, obviously a related topic. Now, as you, a lot of you would know, we do have a very large edge network um, which we use to speed up delivery of content from AWS to our customers and to our customers' customers. Um, that's obviously the CloudFront front network. And mm-hmm. 
the great thing about that is obviously we have edge locations or points of presence in countries where we don't necessarily have a region, we may still have a point of presence. So you can actually get your data closer to your customers wherever they may be. Now, what comes up a lot, obviously, is, is not only delivery of data to customers, but also how to get data into AWS as well. And so we started to ask ourselves the question, could we use the content delivery network in reverse? So could we actually use the, um, the smarts in that network to allow customers to have an accelerated transfer into S3? And the answer was yes. And the reason that we wanted to do that was because if you look at what goes on behind the scenes, there's a lot of network analysis that we do to try and route traffic intelligently, depending on obviously what's going on um, on the interwebs. That's right. And we spent a lot of engineering effort figuring out where we should have CloudFront um, edge locations. And based on that, um, that helps us to improve the throughput. So by putting a CDN in front of your applications, um, you know, we definitely reduce the latency because uh, depending which part of the world you live in, you may find that your packets get routed um, across the globe in different uh, directions uh, just to get to the endpoint. Whereas if you use our CDN CloudFront, um, we actually try to ensure that we optimize the, the hop count. So you have the lowest hop count so your bits get from you know, um, source origin to destination as quickly as possible. So what we did with the Amazon S3 transfer acceleration service that we've introduced is that you can actually, on your S3 bucket, you can just simply say, um, I want a new endpoint for this, and we'll, when it's basically just at the click of a button or obviously through the, the CLI or API, and we'll then give you um, a new endpoint. And if you then push data to that endpoint, what we'll actually do is we'll find the closest point of presence and we'll load data into that, and from there, we'll actually then route that intelligently back to wherever your S3 bucket is, um, the target that you're pushing to. There's not much you got to do, essentially, right? You just need to... Um you know, so you'll see public buckets at the moment. Your endpoints might be mybucket.s3.amazonaws.com. And by simply changing it to, you know, mybucket.s3-accelerate.amazonaws.com, you basically take advantage of, um, of the acceleration service because we monitor the internet weather and we use Route 53. We will point the client endpoint to the closest edge location, which will then receive your upload and forward it onto your destination bucket. Now, there's a great uh, tool that we've released to allow you to have a, a bit of a look at this um, without actually moving any data yourself. You can just kind of get a feel for the type of speed up that you might experience. Uh, and um, Pete's going to tell you the URL in a second. But basically what it does is it goes through all the different uh, regions that we have uh, around the world and says to you, if you're uploading from where you are right now to US East, if you do it directly, it will you'll get this, this type of throughput. If you use transfer acceleration, then the percentage speed up you'll get will be, uh, will be X and you can see the different, um, the different percentages with the different regions around the world. And obviously the further away from the origin you get, then uh, typically the, the better, the better um, acceleration you get. So if you want to access the Amazon S3 transfer acceleration comparison tool, you can type in a very long URL or you can use our bit.ly link that we've created for you. So if you use http colon forward forward slash bit.ly slash S3 accelerate. So bit.ly slash S3 accelerate, that'll take you straight to the 
S3 transfer acceleration tool so you can do your own assessments of how much of a performance boost you're going to get by using this brand new feature. So let's change gears a little bit now, Russ, and talk about tagging strategies. Oh, please, now, yes, Pete, let's do that. <laughs> all right, let's do it. Okay, so tagging is all about providing some additional metadata uh, to the AWS resources that you're actually using in the cloud. Now, each tag is really a simple um, label consisting of a customer-defined key and an optional value, and these values could be of anything. Now, these tags are really useful to help you make it easy to manage, search for, and filter resources so you can very quickly find the things you're looking for. Now, the purpose of this is very useful because you can start to do some really clever things with it. Before we dive into that, Russ, do you tag? I do. I do tag, Pete. Yes, I do. And it's interesting. A lot of people think about tagging as a strategy for when they've got a lot of resources in AWS, they think, oh, then I'll put a a tagging strategy in place. But in fact, it's extremely useful, even if you're just an individual developer just doing uh, doing some some uh, some dev stuff. Uh, and if you look at the resource groups, what that allows you to do is essentially to create a little mini console of your own uh, that will show you all the resources that are tagged with a particular value or values. And the great thing about this is it is across service and also across region. So it's a great way to get a real snapshot view of the resources that you're working on. So uh, yeah, have a look at the resource groups. Very, very useful. Indeed. And if you look at things like Cost Explorer and also the detailed billing reports that we drop as CSV files into your S3 buckets, you can also see tags make their way into the CSV records. So if you're burn, building reports or burn down charts and you are using the CSV files as a source input for that, um, those tags actually do come through in those reports as well. Now, having said that, you know, there are lots of other use cases for, for tags, Russ. Um, do you tag for technical purposes? Yeah, one of the first uh, stops for a lot of customers is to do a very technical tagging, and this can be on a number of fronts. An obvious one, of course, is the environment that a resource belongs to, so whether it's uh, a dev environment, test, or production environment, but also things like the role that that resource has. You know, is it a database? Is it a message broker, web server, etc., Or is it part of a particular cluster? Great way to really label things and group things at that at that very basic technical level. And you can also make sure that the environments are tagged appropriately as dev test. And uh, the other useful thing about that is you can put some version numbers there as well. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And for automation, that's the other way uh, people use tagging. You know, when you have things such as enrollment for being turned on or turned off. So a lot of customers put in, you know, turn me on, turn me off tags, which means that, you know, a process or a Lambda function can run and do an inspection of the tags and say, hey, at 7 p.m. when all the developers have gone home, let's turn off that dev test environment for them. And at perhaps 8 a.m. before they arrive uh, at the desks with the breakfast to start cutting some more code, um, you know, that automation script can also run and say, hey, this stuff is tagged to be turned on at this particular time. So, you know, back on the EC2 instance goes. So you can do a lot of clever stuff with that because that gives you control around what's going on. And, you know, with uh, continuous integration tools and scripts that you run, you know, a lot of this stuff can uh, create a lot of infrastructure. So you can do things like even, you know, tag things for security purposes to say, hey, by the way, this VPC has flow logs enabled, um, you know, or, you know, route tables uh, and security groups. Uh, all of that stuff has uh, a lot of information that can actually help you quickly identify on, as to what's going on. And if that wasn't enough, you may consider using tagging for business purposes. 
For example, you might want to say, you know, who is the actual business owner of this particular technology stack? You know, you've got you know, this whole entire stack, uh, you know, web, app, database tier. Who is the owner or who should you contact perhaps uh, in case of an emergency for escalations? Uh, you might want to tag your infrastructure with uh, department co codes and business units so that when you do your showbacks and display information as to how much somebody has spent, they can be actually, you know, quite quickly caught into a particular bucket to say this belongs to a project. Um, as well as if you really want to be sophisticated even more, you can start to tag the infrastructure as to which customers are going to be using it. So if you're a managed service provider, you may consider saying this infrastructure belongs to this particular customer if you're doing multi-tenancies as well. So lots and lots of options. Now, the other thing we sometimes see it used for is actually for access control as well. So IAM policies support tag-based conditions. So you can put that into your policies and, again, just gives you another dimension with which to work with when you're, you're setting up access control. Now, one of the interesting things we see with customers is a slightly different approach to governance of their tags. So sometimes we'll see customers use a reactive approach to this where they'll set up scripts that will look through the resources and will check to see if they've been tagged correctly. But then we also see that as customers start to get slightly larger and more mature with the platform, they move to a more proactive strategy where they're using things like cloud formation to actually spin up their infrastructure. And so they actually make sure that within that uh, cloud formation script, it actually makes sure that something is actually tagged correctly. So we see kind of both of those types of strategies in play as well. And for best practices, always consider standardizing the naming conventions um, that you're going to use for your tags. You know, think about things like making sure that things are case sensitive in the right format for your tags. Um, there's nothing worse than having you know, every different team having a different uh, naming convention for the same thing. And also try to make sure you implement it uniformly across all of your resource types and also across multiple accounts as well. Uh, you know, as you grow, you might want to consider having the same standards across the entire set of accounts that you're also using. And also think about the values or the tag dimensions as we refer to them as to make sure that you're using the right values for cost tracking, department codes, make sure they're the right, you know, the right digits, uh, as well as the any references to business units, make sure these are pretty much consistent. And uh, you know, try to err on the side of having too many tags rather than too few tags because you can always go back and delete them or add them as you go. So those tags, remember, are not permanent. Um, you can change this with a script. So if you do uh, potentially fat finger a label or a value, you can always write a script to go back and make an amendment. Having said that, some of our services like CloudFormation will tattoo those values as well as uh, Elastic Beanstalk. Um, and some of those tags actually are there to actually help you identify those as well. So we actually go out of our way and um, you know, proactively tag some elements. But again, uh, it's entirely up to you. So Russ, what do you think? Pete, that was a lot more interesting than I thought. You've convinced me. I'm glad. <laughs> well, we all tag, and uh, if you're not, you should. It's uh, definitely of value because um, there are a lot more benefits um, that you can actually get out of the AWS platform by leveraging tagging because uh, you can have your own customized, personalized view of uh, all the things that are running in there. Fantastic. Well, I think that's it for this episode, Pete. And do you have any uh, closing thoughts for us before we say farewell to our listeners? Uh, I'd just like to say thanks to everyone for listening. And uh, my parting thought would be that uh, I hope if you're trying to load a CSV file into a database, that you don't have carriage returns in the middle of your lines. And like every service team, the AWS 
tech chat is driven by customer feedback. So we'd love to hear your feedback. We've already received lots, so thank you very much. But if you do want to keep in touch and let us know what you think and make some recommendations, feel free to follow us on Twitter at AWS Cloud ANZ or send us an email directly to aws-anz-marketing at amazon.com. Thanks for tuning in, and we look forward to having you back on the show next time. Signing off, this is Russ. And this is Dr. Pete. We really hope you've enjoyed this episode. If you liked it, tell your friends, tell your colleagues, and tune in again to learn more about AWS Cloud. Please subscribe to the AWS Tech Chat through iTunes, SoundCloud, or by Googling AWS Tech Chat.